You're listening to the Around the Lens podcast, the home of high-quality, roundtable, visual journalism discussion about the news, topics, and gear related to our career field. Now, here's the host of our show, David J. Murphy. Hello and welcome to Around the Lens episode 246. I'm your host, freelance visual journalist based out of South Korea, David J. Murphy. Joining me this week are two awesome guests. We'll start with our first, with our returning guest, uh, Mr. Josh Edelson, a freelance photographer based out of San Francisco. Hello, Josh. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Great, great. Glad to have you back on. This is your second appearance. How, uh, how have you been since the last time you were on? Um, good. More fires, more, uh, more craziness. Um, you know, basically 2020 is, uh, everything I've experienced before on steroids. So yeah. to be expected. Yeah. I mean, obviously you you cover the fires, you know, that's kind of like your big thing and, you know, you've lived in that world for a long time. Has it been any different, you know, in terms of the intensity of the fires or is it pretty much just same old, same old fires? No, definitely more intense. Um, I mean, it seems like every year, uh, all the, the rules, the things we can expect in terms of fire behavior and fire activity, those rules tend to get broken and, and uh, new standards and new levels seem to be reached. Nice. Wow. Um, yeah, it's every year it seems to get crazier and this year was no exception. Was it crazy with all the red skies and everything? You know what's interesting is when San Francisco had those red skies, uh, as I'm sure many people saw online, um, I actually missed that because I was at the fire. Oh, so yeah, there's okay. never, ironically, there's never been a time where I felt like I missed a section of the story because I was actually at the center of where the story was originating. Right. That was very bizarre. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I saw the video and the photos. It was like, I love the San Francisco, the... Um what was it? they made it look like a movie you know with the drone footage and stuff like that blade runner uh, they made it look like blade um, runner that yeah was blade great. runner with the, yeah that was really cool awesome <laughs> we'll talk more about that later our other guest a uh, longtime friend of mine uh, we go way back all the way back to the syracuse university days go orange speaking of orange go orange yeah uh mr chris stoltz a visual artist based out of los angeles and former sailor how you doing chris very good thanks for having me on the show well, glad to have you, buddy. Great to hear from you. It's been too long, and I've been keeping up with you on the Facebook, but how, how have things been going for you in, in L.A.? What kind of brought you to L.A.? Well, we we got out of the – well, I got out. Um, talking the we when you get married, I guess. Yeah, no, right. um, I, got out, I got out of the military, <laughs> and uh, we decided to move this way. My wife uh, has some family here, so yeah. it's, been a, it's been a nice move out here. LA has been surprising and uh, delightful in every single aspect. Um, so yeah, we've we've really enjoyed getting out this way. Did you never but, thought never thought I'd live on the West Coast? Honestly, I know, right? But, yeah, the East Coast for life, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. What were you? Where did you think you'd end up if not the West Coast? I thought I'd, I thought I'd end up back in the South. You know, I thought okay. I'd end up back in North Carolina. And maybe maybe one day we'll still. But you know, it's been yeah. a nice uh, nice change of pace out here. It's definitely. Um, you know, uh, the food down here is great. You yeah. can't, can't beat, can't beat it. Nice. Okay. Did you have any of the red skies by chance in LA? Did they, the fire that far? We had a little far? bit of it. Yeah. We were getting a little bit of, and we were getting a little bit of the ash as well. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, it's, it was really weird. Um, yeah. Like the sun was like covered. It was, it was, uh, I would say very blade runnery. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the 20, 
2020 Blade Runner vibe was definitely kicking in here. Indeed, indeed. Of course, it would only add to what 2020 has been and is uh, for all of us. You know, the year that we all survive, I think, right? Once we get to 2021, we'll talk about how we survived 2020 more so than other years, I think. Uh, but anyways, great to have you both guys on. We're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff tonight. So let's get on with the show. Uh, our first topic is about Nikon. Uh, I wish I had Zach on because he's our resident Nikon user. But, you know, of course, he's uh, doing his own thing right now. So we'll get him on another time to talk. Maybe when these new cameras actually drop, we can get his take on that. But uh, let's talk a little about the rumors that have come out. Before we talk about this, though, any Nikon shooters in the room? Chris or Josh? Yeah, I'm Nikon. Nikon? Uh-huh. Okay, great. Uh-huh. You can... I've shot Nikon for 15 years in the Navy, yeah. and like I think they have a contract, so yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Yeah, no, I, I shot Nikon for much of my career as well. I, I, I've loved. I started out on Nikon. You know, that was their, my first camera, my first ever film camera was Nikon. So uh, they've got a nice place in my heart. But of course, you know, if you've looked at what kind of camera innovations have been coming out recently. You know, there hasn't been a lot coming out from Nikon, at least not compared to what's been dropping from Sony and Canon and others folks, as far as I, I consider. But uh, they've got two cameras that are coming out on the 14th. Uh, that's their big announcement. So, of course, once that drop, we'll know for sure. But we have some sort of uh, pre-release rumored speculation um, going on. We'll talk about the that and kind of what our general impression are of these two cameras. So um, they're supposed to start shipping in November. It's the Z6 II. And then the Z7 II, I guess their higher-end camera, will ship in January. Uh, they should have 4K60. It says here with a 1.7x crop factor, which is disappointing considering Sony and Canon have both been able to introduce cameras without that. Uh, prices are looking at about $1,800 and $2,500. Um, the Z7 actually probably fall in line with the R6 from Canon and the S5. Um, from Panasonic, so that's interesting to see where they're kind of placing these cameras and kind of where they consider them. Uh, looks like they're using the same sensors uh, as the previous ones. So that's interesting. Battery grips, okay. Uh, 14 frames per second for the Z6, 12 frames per second for the Z7, okay. That's not bad if the Z7 is, you know, 40, 50 megapixels, I guess. Uh, let's see, Animal IAF. Uh, low light, improved energy savings. Mm, nothing, nothing too mind blowing here. I, I kept on, you know, seeing like rumors like 8K and other things like that. But that could come from. I hear they're working on a like a D5 mirrorless replacement, like the Z9 or something like that. But I, uh, you know, I haven't seen too much on that. Um, but yeah, these seem kind of they're aiming for the same sort of prosumer, high level consumer market they have in the past um nothing too exciting with regard to features i'll pull up the a9 specs but do either of you guys have any interest in this you know these these new cameras the c6 2 or the c7 2 have either of you moved to the z series or tried their mirrorless lenses i got a z7 so i've been shooting uh nikon pretty much since the start of my career and uh i have so i currently have a d5 a d4s and now a z7 mm-hmm. I wasn't willing to make the full switch to mirrorless because, I don't know, I, didn't, I just didn't want to take that big of a leap. Um, and the main reason I got the Z7 is because of the the larger megapixels. So since it's, I think it's like 47 megapixels or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 
So my thinking was that um, I didn't really want to spend $10,000 on a 600 millimeter 2.8 lens. Mm -hmm. So instead, I bought the Nikon 200 to 500 5.6, which was like, I think it was like, I don't know, 1200 or 1500. And I figured with that lens at 500 on the Z7, I could probably crop in by like 50% and it would be relatively close to shooting with like a 600 and that that was a much less expensive way of getting in a lot tighter. Um, and so that was my initial thought on getting the Z7 was the megapixels. But the mirrorless also offers uh, one other thing that that does help me quite a bit, and that's the silent shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Back when corporate events were actually happening, um, there were a number of times where I had to shoot very sparingly because of how loud Nikon shutter is especially with the D5 and the D4S. I mean, it's just like you hear that mirror slapping really loud. And sometimes I have to shoot like a frame and then wait like 15 seconds and then one more frame because otherwise it's really obnoxious. So yeah. having having the uh, the mirrorless gives me that option, although I haven't really needed it since my corporate work has, has diminished quite a bit this year. But you don't want to disturb the firefighters as they're trying to fight the roaring fire, right? You know, you got to keep that quiet while they're doing their job. I will say that, like, having the Z7 on the fire line has been useful for airdrops or things where I need to crop in quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but I do feel more comfortable with my D5 because of the low light. Yeah. Hmm. Now, do you think the weight factor is like a huge difference to you, especially when you're carrying multiple bodies or you, it does, you dig? It, it does make a difference if I'm uh, if I'm walking around a lot. I mean, especially with like, you know, if I have like my 50 uh, 1.8 lens on the, the Z7, it's really light. And it, like I almost would forget I even have a camera on me as opposed to, you know, the D5 or D4S, which are pretty heavy. However, the majority of the weight is usually on the lens. So if I have like right. a 135, 1.4, um, then, you know, it's like it's still going to feel heavy. But it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been a long time mirrorless user. I've uh, I swapped over to Leica uh, like maybe back in 2008, 2009 ish. And uh, I've just never looked back. I've really, you know, I think I got used to carrying a Nikon D3 in the military and then D4 towards the back end. And then when that swap happened, I was like, this thing is so much lighter and it's so much, <laughs> yeah. you know, what'd you swap so to really... mirrorless? What was your first mirrorless after going from DSLR? <laughs> so I went to a Leica ME and the, you know, it's like the famous M mount. And um, like, I just noticed the night and now I shoot like an, a, a Leica SL. So I'm, we got the silent shutter, all that stuff. Yeah. But, um, uh, and I love those cameras, but I feel like the, you know, I'm excited that Nikon's finally getting, you know, trying to get really good at the game of it because um, I feel like once everyone's on that platform, it'll, you know, innovation will start to chug along a little bit better. You know, I think they're maybe a little late to the party on this, but uh, I was reading something the other day that was saying that like now's the time to be excited for them because I think they were like, oh, well, this for is Nikon. the thing. Yeah, and they did the same thing when they swapped from film to you know digital as well. They were probably the last ones in. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still making an f6, but when they should have been making you know a d2 a little bit better. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I think 
everything that I've seen, I have not got to shoot this camera yet. So maybe I'm not the, the expertise on it. But I like when I read those spec reviews, I'm like, this, these are getting there. And um, I like what's coming out of it. Yeah, I think I these think... are definitely going to be, for those people who are, you know, shooting the, the Z series already, this is going to be a probably compelling upgrade for them. Or if you perhaps were smart and didn't buy first generation equipment, now you're getting kind of into the, okay, they figured out like what to do right, what to do wrong. Maybe they have two card slots on there and they worked out the kinks and now you're getting into the second generation when they actually have a little bit more maturity, which when I, when the first ones came out, I was always telling people, Hey, wait, you know, don't get the, don't get the R from Canon. Don't get the Z from, you know, cause again, Sony took three, four iterations before they got to uh, cameras that people, you know, were actually very salivating for like the A7S uh, three, right. And the A4 and all the, all the things that they're doing. So, you know, again, I would say to wait, but, um, you know, we'll find out if these are actually compelling upgrades. Were you going to say something, Josh? Yeah. So a couple of things, one, one other thing that, uh, in terms of the size of the Z7 or even the Z6, um, that I think is worth mentioning. It's especially useful to have that camera be smaller when you're wearing a mask, like at protests, if I'm wearing a gas mask mm -hmm. or at fires, I have a, uh, it's called an HS4. It's like this big filter mechanism and then goggles on. And so mm. I found that with my D5, sometimes I, I kind of like hold if There's like a space between my eye and where the actual camera is because of it's bumping up against the filter. Whereas with the smaller camera body, I can actually get it closer to my eye. So that's worth noting. And then the other thing that's a huge thing is uh, the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth transfer on the mm. mirrorless, which for some reason that confounds me uh nikon's uh dslrs like d5 d4s like you had to buy this wi-fi dongle that was like six hundred dollars and it was a complete like i mean it just sometimes it would work sometimes it wouldn't and like their smaller little point and shoot cameras had the wi-fi and bluetooth transfers on them so we knew that the technology existed but for some reason, they just wouldn't put it in their high-end DSLRs, maybe because they were trying to squeeze an extra $600 out of people, which really rubbed like all of us Nikon users the wrong way, especially since Canon had it. And so like that when, in combination with the, the, D, uh, the D6 coming out prematurely and not really adding much kind of makes us feel like, okay, mirrorless is like their last hurrah, so they better nail it. Whenever I see things like that, I really just feel like it's uh, more of an engineer. An engineer didn't think to put it in because they were probably given that requirement like <laughs> at the very last inning of the match or something. You know, like it's one of those things where Canon probably was like, we got it, let's put it in. And then Nikon sees that camera come out like, can we put this in? No, but we can build a thing that goes on top. You know? It's nice so, of you to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. You, you don't buy it? You don't buy it? Okay. No. I, I would like to, I, I believe in these companies. I really do feel like they, they want to make a good camera. You know, I don't think they're negligent and like, oh, we just don't want to put it in. I don't know. So, I mean... Canon and Nikon did not move at all on mirrorless until Sony actually dropped, you know, their cameras and started stealing their market share. So yeah. are, do they really have the best interest of us in mind or are they just going to go with the same old, same old until someone challenges, you know, their dominance and their monopolies and stuff, duopoly, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, with regard to moving from DSLR to mirrorless, I always say when I move to 
not only mirrorless, but Micro Four Third at the Panasonic, it was such a great, like, so much weight lifted off, you know. I don't know if you use ever Micro Four Thirds, but it was just, I mean, I know it's smaller sensor and stuff, but, oof, man, it was it was wonderful. Now I'm back to full-frame sensor with the Canon R5, and it's like, oh, man, all the weight. But it's still better than the, the 5D Mark II. I'll take that any day of the week in terms of from weight size and stuff like that. But I was just pulling up the specs here for the Sony A9, or as I'm sorry, the Nikon Z9. Uh, these are the some of the specs leaked here in their second about a 46 megapixel sensor so probably the same if not nearly identical sensor that's going to be in the z7 but it's going to be capable of 20 frames per second photos 8k 30p video um they're looking at like a price range of six to seven thousand dollars for it so it's definitely kind of be like their d5 d6 replacement i'm guessing available in fall 2021 so a lot of the kind of gigabit Ethernet and some of the other things you expect on sort of a, a high-res, um, sort of high, you know, pro quality, I guess you would say, camera. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the A9 or Z9 specs at all. There's really not too much to go off of here from what I can find. But again, you know, does a, does a flagship full-body you know, D6, mirrorless D6 equivalent with 8K capability. Does that, does that interest you at all, Josh or, or, or Chris? Um, there's two, there's two considerations that would, that could change my mind about it. Um, right now, no. Um, one, uh, what is the, how does the, uh, the ISO or low light, uh, performance compare to the D5? Um, if it's equal or better, then that makes a big difference to me. And two, right now, um, in order to use all my existing lens lenses, there's that right. little adapter, right? And that has caused a few problems for me in that there's a very slight delay. So when I turn the camera on, I have to wait sometimes as much as two seconds before it actually like clicks in. And mm -hmm. apparently that's because of the adapter. And I've mm -hmm. missed shots because of that. Oh, geez, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that is slightly frustrating. Now, granted, I know that if I got all of the Z series lenses, it would eliminate that problem, mm -hmm. but I'm not about to change my entire lens uh, inventory uh, just right. to avoid that one adapter, especially when I'm not 100% convinced on their mirrorless system yet. Right. So. It would really have to be a significant performance improvement than the D5 in order for me to make that jump. Yeah, I wonder, do the extreme heat and scenarios you work in, like, affect the mirrorless differently than the mirror camera? Or, you know, does the mechanical shutter-based camera have better, you know, longevity or endurance in a fire, you know, situation? Or is it no difference? Um, so far, not a huge difference, although I do use my D5 and D4S a lot heavier during fires mm -hmm. and and they really handle it well like there are times when it's so hot i can't i can't hold the camera without wearing gloves because wow. it will burn my skin and i'm shooting and that camera is getting hot yeah um a similar situation with my iphone um where i have a battery pack on my iphone yeah. and sometimes i'm taking a video and the phone just gets too hot so it, it, I've actually had it like start to turn off because I'm too close to the fire and it's just getting really hot. But the, the cameras, I've never had them turn off um, so far. 
So I I did not have a similar. I think maybe well, I didn't have a D five, but I had a D four in a rack, and uh, I remember it like shutting down on me just from the heat outside. Yeah. Like you spend the day in the Humvee, and then you get out, and it was just like we're not working today. So I. I don't think there's anything more awkward than being a photographer with a camera that doesn't yeah. turn on. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. It's like, like the one thing you were here for, the one thing. <laughs> I could see that. So. With fires, it's slightly different in that the heat the heat radiates from like a central source as opposed to being all around. I mean, it's not usually you know 130 degrees on the ground. Um, it's usually like if I'm photographing a building on on fire then like the lens is going to take the brunt of the heat just because it's you know it's a big lens yeah so there's that i'd love to take my canon r5 and shoot a fire i'm sure there'd be no issues with overheating whatsoever have have (laughs) any of your compatriots out there has anybody have an r5 have they tested it out there by chance i have a buddy that just got an r5 but he hasn't used it enough to for me to hear how it compares yet yeah, no, it's just yeah. You know, funny with all the overheating issues of that camera. They'd probably die on the vine shooting, uh, a, shooting a, you know, forest fire or something. Mm-hmm. But, okay, cool. So you're using the Lycus, Chris, and you're happy with that. You know, no chance that you, you know, no chance you can yeah, change I, it right I now. Would, I would swap, um, you know, like, I would, I would consider it if, um, you know, Nikon just came out with some optics that were on par. Like yeah. I, the main reason I like I was photo editing at the time, and uh, I just saw Leica come across, and like the clarity on those were just a little bit better for me. Like just the contrast like appealed to me a little bit more. Um, you know, I like not only the compact size, but just like you know, I still have like I, I just got a. Uh, I still have like Nikon DSLRs, and I chase the kids around with them every once in a while. The autofocus is great. Like, mm-hmm. my my, uh, I mean, my SL does autofocus, but the you know the M's are manual. So like, you know, the kids when I just need to grab like a, a small camera and run around with them, I'll I'll take a the old Nikon and shoot them with it. So I'm not completely out of the habit. Um, and after shooting it for so long, I'm sure y'all are familiar. You just get to know those buttons really well. So like you know how to make it move a little bit quicker so oh yeah that's a big Uh, thing for me too i have a really hard time going from the d5 to the z7 like there'll be times when i'm like uh, where how do i change the white balance again and i like (laughs) need to take a minute and that's that's the other thing it's a big ask to ask like your entire setup to shift over you know i think that's a big and maybe why Nikon, again, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to the camera company. Maybe they're just like, we like where our stuff's positioned. You know, people can pull it up, you know, for years. I mean, every D model had that little pad in the back. So, I don't know. Is it the same on the Z? Is it the same on the Z back? Um, it's, it's slightly different. I mean, there is that pad on the back, so you can navigate around. Um, uh I don't know about the positions like it's 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 just not my D5 like the D5 mm-hmm. seems to be like designed around the shape of my hand and mm-hmm. so you know with the the Z series like because they're so much smaller they can't really do that so it just doesn't really work that way that's the one thing with Sony that's never won me over is the ergonomics have just never been there for me whereas I feel like the like when you pick up a 
Nikon D, like it does feel like it's supposed to be in your hand. There's like a little bit of a grip to it. Like, um, I don't know if y'all feel the same way, but for me, ergonomics is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that for the Z series, they're planning on adding a battery pack or something so you can shoot vertical and still have that grip and that, that will help. Um, but by far the, the biggest thing that's a big disappointment is the battery at least on the Z7, and I think on the Z6 as well. Like it, it dies in like an hour. Oh wow! It's, it's yeah, that's really, it's really like, short. it's like the. I don't know the exact. It's like a tiny little battery that's like half the size of the D. Like I actually, I shot something with the Z7 and the D5 once, and I had to change the battery on the Z7 twice, and the D5 never died. So, mm. it, it's, it's they that definitely needs improvement. Mm. Yeah, with the button placement thing you mentioned, uh, that's been the biggest hurdle for me in moving from the Panasonic to the Canon because it, it completely operates differently with regard to menu layout, with regard to just switching between photo and video mode, with trying to change the, the way I focus. It's, oh, it's the biggest thing, and it slows you so down when you're trying to learn everything, especially if you're trying to learn it while you're doing it as opposed to spending hours and just getting used to the camera and even still it's like that muscle memory. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm sure I could pick up a can, a Nikon, you know, D series camera right now and I'd be in it in five minutes, you know, ready to go and, and shooting. But you know, with this Canon, it's like completely different layout from the, the Mark two, or at least, you know, from the last time I touched a Mark two. So it's just, yeah, that's a big thing. But I think once you get past that, you know, it's not too bad. I've been I've been loving every bit every minute every time I use a different shoot it's like it always amazes me especially the autofocus system and how it tracks it's just night and day different from what I've been using. All right, well let's go ahead and move on to our next topic this evening or morning for whatever whatever you're in whatever part of the world you're in right now. Um, Snapper s n a p p r dot com is a new sort of website that's trying to be the Uber. Excuse me, Uber of. Uh, sort of photographers in that basically it'll connect you with a photographer in your area. Um, I have not used the service myself. I don't know if either of you have, but it's, it's something we've kind of talked about and touched on in other episodes of the show. And we've seen similar concepts to this, you know, but it's always good to kind of double check and see where the sort of market is at with regard to these type of things. Because I think if you're a freelancer, you know, if you're, especially if you know, you're working in very highly populated metropolitan areas, you know, this type of um, service definitely has more of a facility and capability for you. Um, so, you know, you guys are kind of both in sort of metropolitan areas. You know, do you think you'd use something like this, some sort of thing where you kind of put yourself as the photographer, you know, either or, but as the photographer, putting yourself out there in a service where essentially, you know, people can just kind of bid on you and, you know, call you up, you know, for your services? Would you, would either of you kind of sign up or use a service like this? I'll let I'll let freelance go first. <laughs> okay. I, I probably have a I have a negative take on this. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I get emails from them and a bunch of other companies from time to time. Um, there seem to be dozens of attempts for new startups that are just trying to make it. I don't know if this is a startup or not, but but a lot of companies where. Um, they're trying to systemize the photography industry and make yeah. it so that it's like contactless and touchless <laughs> to the point of like, I have a photographer yeah. and 
you, you have to do less work. That seems to be a common theme in our economy, you know, easy, make everything as easy as possible. But um, what uh, is not um, replaceable is the, uh, the relationship between the photographer and the client, at least in terms of corporate. Um, and I guess in, with journalism too. Um, and so I just don't really see it except for like low end fast turnaround type shoots. Like if, right. if there's, um, let's say like a family portrait session and there's like, you know, 10 shoots coming across a photographer's desk every day, or rather there's like 10 people looking for photographers every day. I could see a market for that, but for what I do, corporate events, headshots, and photojournalism, it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I'm also like kind of against these type of things because um, I, I keep remembering when Getty Images first came about. Like, I think we were at Syracuse at the time, David. Like, mm-hmm. um, they were buying up giant m- amounts of imagery, and like now they're like this behemoth that like you just can't escape. And like, anytime you're taking away. Um, individual's expression or like you know a sort of a voice to the photographer i'm, I'm just kind of against that in general um so you're basically homogenizing like, all photographers into a glom right like, like here you go here's rando photographer who happened to meet our standards they're gonna go take your stuff right. you know there's no personal connection right right and like i just don't think that should be the way forward mm-hmm. um so, like, even, like, getting to know your local photographer, I think, would be a better, you know, like, I, I would prefer a bad photographer that I know, at least I've built a relationship with, to shoot my kid's birthday, you know, if, if we're going to talk about those levels, than somebody that I pull through an app. I mean, right. and I think that you support your artist friends that way, I feel like, um, once it gets to that level, and uh, sadly, I, this might be successful. It might be a successful venture, and I just think when th- these things happen, and we're really doing a disservice to each other as photographers or visual artists um, by saying, "Hey, I think that you are like many other people in your career field." So, and I, I just don't believe that in general. I think each person brings something special to the to the career field, or um, the art in general. Do you think that that can't happen because the photographer isn't sort of been vetted? I mean, how, you know, again, from the, the, the hiring side, right. When I'm looking for, if I was like, when I was looking for a wedding photographer, right. I'm looking at their website, you know, is there a difference between looking at someone's website versus, you know, if I'm on this service and looking through different photographers, portfolios or profiles, you know, if I can see, sort of previews of the images that they've shot, if I can see their portfolio on this service versus on their website, what's the difference? I don't know. I I feel like, um, you know, because in my mind, the the service is going to take a cut, right? Anytime you have, you know, they're going to... And also, like, the negotiation of that like where they place the value if the artist individual makes their own value assumption of like this is what i charge and this is what it makes sense for me to make the money right Mm -hmm. they're assigning their own worth Mm -hmm. and 
that negotiation I think should happen in every artist's life. I think, I mean, I grapple with it daily and then, you know, like what is the piece that I make? How does that go into the world? Like how much is that time and effort worth to me? Uh, What am I trying to say with it? And I think all of those things come into play when you have an algorithm that says, well, this person's based in LA. So they're, their market share or their time is worth X, but the guy in Ohio, he's worth a little less because there's more or maybe vice versa since because LA is a little bit more oversaturated with photographers. They're like, Oh, well, we've got, you know, thousands of photographers to pick from in LA, but there's only one guy in Ohio. Yeah. You get these like weird associative things. And whenever I see things like that, this only functions in a very, you know, monetized version of photography for me there's nothing we're not going to go to this site and be like i'm going to see some great art today or you know like we might you know it might be a guy there but like i I don't think anybody will go into that site for that particular reason so yeah well i was just scanning it you know kind of testing out the capabilities looking for photographers in the la area and uh, mm-hmm. sad I didn't find you, Chris, but no, just kidding. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, as someone who has tried to and, and valiantly tried and failed many times to get f- good photos of my family at different events and locations where I've taken them to and struggling to get them to even look at the camera, I, I can see the value in potentially having like a short notice photographer who can shoot a family portrait. And you do get to see like their work, like they'll recommend people to you but you know you can see their portfolio you can see who you'd potentially be hiring and see if they're the right fit for you so there is a degree of like choice in the matter um but i could definitely see a uh a utility to this for my needs if if you know if the price warranted because even at like the cheapest method or cheapest option here i'm looking at like one hour it's like 149 dollars so it's obviously not something I'm going to do every time, but if it's like, for instance, I was at this um, very beautiful area with lots of great flowers and stuff, and I could see the potential of different photo opportunities. But you know, again, I'm only with my guy, I'm myself with my tripod, and you know, struggling to get my kids to even look at the camera. So, you know, again, it'll have to be a, a sort of selective choice. But I, I could definitely see the utility in something like this from a hiring perspective. I, I like the idea of like if you really want a photo and you don't think you're getting it, you, you ask your, your nephew or your brother or someone, you get someone else involved in photography. Um, anytime you give like someone, you put someone in that position that normally wouldn't take that photo. Um, I think you're giving them the opportunity to maybe make art on their own as well. So I don't know. I, I feel like, again, like all those scenarios in my head break down to like, there's a, there's a communal way to get to talk about photography um, as opposed to outsourcing it to someone that you might not meet again. Right. So, yeah. Well, you know, I wonder if, you, and, could... you know, the frustration of that tripod is half the battle of what we do as like, you know, making imagery, yeah, you know, like, absolutely. and I think the bad stories are just as entertaining. Like I had a horrible wedding photographer. Oh, well, they geez. would not, at the time it was ironic because I had, I worked at a uh, combat camera and I had a bunch of friends that were wildly talented, but me and my wife had a Las Vegas wedding and the venue would not allow any, um, photographers into the venue that you had to oh. use the venues photographer. And yeah. this is what I'm talking about with a, a pre-set up shop. Um, 
So it wasn't the one that I would want. And then I still didn't end up having, but I think there is a thing where the bad photograph is still worth the story. So, and I'd honestly, you know, like I'd honestly fight for those bad photograph stories to, to keep happening. Sure. it, It makes you realize the worth of a good photograph. Yeah, I mean, in the end, it's just going to be part of the story of his life, you know, as like my kid's life, because it's going to be like, we'll look back on these pictures and see, see, see in every single one of these photos, you didn't look at the camera, or you made a funny face, or you were looking down, or you weren't smiling. That's your life. That's your your memories right there. Way to go for not uh, smiling when we asked you to. Um, But Josh, you know, you were saying these kind of companies have approached you. I believe this is a startup. I know they recently had a round of funding, and they actually raised like Thirteen million dollars or something. So obviously, some people, you know, see some merit in services like these. But you know, going back to what Chris is saying, kind of, you're sort of, you know, you weren't totally sold on it. Do you think these type of services just they got to stop trying, or do you think there's like a key to get making this successful, and they just haven't found it yet? Um, it's a good question. I, I mean, my perception is that like if they're advertising, you know, one hundred and forty nine dollars for one hour of service. If somebody uses that app to find a photographer, they probably have never hired a photographer before, um, or this is something that is foreign for them. And I think if if the goal is to connect um, uh, uh, the people that are looking to hire photographers um, who have not that are not that familiar with like how the process works, like how much like what the industry standard for a rate is then like i guess that's kind of a good thing um maybe that's a good way to go about it but for me i find that um a lot of these apps are very focused on the cost because Mm -hmm. they're trying to sell the service they're Mm -hmm. saying like you know it's x amount of dollars per hour or you get a special discount if you do this and like i think when you start focusing heavily on the cost then um it's kind of like starts ruining the 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 whole process in that it places a higher value on the the uh, the quantity and a lower value on the quality. And right. I've made a career on uh, uh, on the quality of my of of the work that I deliver being like the most important. And so granted, everybody has a budget and you know, there's a dollar amount assigned to every job based on what people can afford. Um, but if this, if the main reason is cost, then we just become operator robots that don't care about quality. Cause when photographers are underpaid, they're not going to try as hard either. Right. There's a company in San Francisco. Um, I won't say the name since this is live, but there's a company in San Francisco that is kind of trying to been trying to do that for a number of years um and they uh they send photographers out to events and sometimes i'm shooting an event and i hear from a client like oh we hired a photographer from i'll call it x company from this company um and uh they just did a terrible job and i'm like well i mean (laughs) when the company is advertising that that you know they pay 20 dollars an hour to their photographers then like do you really expect that you're going to get top-notch work when you're when you're only, you know, paying, it's like, you know, you don't go to, uh, uh, a, a dollar store and expect to get like, you know, a filet mignon off the shelf, yeah. you know? 
and and well, it doesn't it, it doesn't it do, one last thing it doesn't necessarily mean that all photographers that shoot for those companies are going to be crap it just is a matter of motivation sure yeah I, i'd say to that point just to double down like the photographer also doesn't have to put their name to that they can hide behind the company you know so like i think there's an ownership that each photographer or you know image maker should also have to adhere to as well like you know yeah no i i uh, to go to your point with you mentioned earlier about this is something for like the beginner uh who is just you know hiring someone for the first time right like you know, who, who may have never has, has hired a photographer before. And it can be a scary proposition when you're thinking about like going into that because you, you do have to engage with the photographer and talk to them and, you know, negotiate rates and all that stuff. And, you know, for there my segment of the population who doesn't want to deal with that. And I thought to my own experience hiring like a wedding photographer, you know, how do we hire photographers, right? Usually we go to the Google machine, we type in photographers, maybe look at photographers in a map area and then we go through their individual websites if they have them and review their photos and then kind of go and make our decision from there in terms of who do we want to you know engage with and maybe you know inquire with to say hey this is what i'm doing and i think that's great if you have the time and you have the inclination and as me as a photographer i know what to look for and what i'm looking for in someone's photographic style but i think for joe average who you know the most photos they take in with their cell phone you know, it might be an intimidating proposition. So I think this site or this service at least does a good job in sort of, hey, these people have been vetted to a degree by, you know, this company. So you know you're not getting a uh, Joe College student who just made a website, you know, with, uh, you know, his, his, you know, Canon T2i or whatever, you know. So I, I think there's a definitely a, a gatekeeping capability with this, but yeah, I, I definitely would advocate for getting to know the people who are, you know, photographing your work and doing the, the legwork to find out, you know, if they're a good connection for you and, and your family or your, you know, company or whatever you're trying to get, you know, photos for. Yeah. And to your point as well, you get what you pay for. So if you're, you know, uh, paying the lowest rates, you may get the, the lowest quality there. The other thing to keep in mind is that the photographers that are going to work for companies like that are ones who... Um, like for me personally, I wouldn't do it because I would have to take a significant discount in yeah. what I charge to work for a company like that. I mean, typically depending on what the rates are. Um, and so for that reason, it's just not worth it. Like I would rather go, you know, find my own clients and charge the rates that I think I deserve. And so if you do hire a photographer through a company like that, it's important for uh, the the I guess the the client the person who's hiring um, to know mm -hmm. that the photographer they get is someone who um, either is unable to find their own clients um, or is maybe just starting out or who needs that system to feed them leads and so maybe if you just need an above an average to slightly above average photographer it might be good. But again, if you're looking for like really high end quality, then it's not the way to go. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump to our last topic this evening before we run out of time. Uh, we're talking about mistakes. Um, so this was an article I saw on Petapixel where, you know, this guy had talked about some of the mistakes he had made in his career. Uh, so I thought maybe we could kind of comment on the, the mistakes he listed and then list any of our own, our own that maybe we could, uh, you know, share with our audience and who could learn from uh, what we've done. 
Um, so the five mistakes that uh, this author mentions, and of course, let me make sure I, I give them a plug. This has come, uh, okay, now I've lost the website. I'm going to find it, but in the meantime, let me go over the five mistakes that he mentions. So the first one is overwork, essentially just kind of working yourself to death. You know, constantly, if you're not working, then obviously there's something wrong, right? So, you know, working, overwork. Um, shooting without intent, so just basically going and shooting anything you see and kind of shooting it, you know, kind of spray and pray maybe or just not going there with a you know, proper intent with how you shoot a subject. Uh, not chasing a niche. niche. So, again, just being the, the everyman who shoots everything and not being like the firefighter shooter or... You know, the visual artist shooter, and the, you know, kind of like just finding things that you focus on, uh, not charging enough for your work, and focusing too much on the location where you're at. So be like, oh, I'm in BFE, so I can't find anything to photograph here. I need to be in LA or San Francisco or South Korea to find something to shoot. So again, kind of that green is, uh, the grass is always green on the other side type argument. So uh, what do you guys think of these, you know, initial mistakes that he mentions? Can you can you relate to these, or you know, do you have any comments on on these mistakes that he had mentioned? I can relate to the work too hard part. I mean, especially in the earlier part of my career, like I feel like um, a big part of being a professional photographer and being an experienced photographer is knowing what not to shoot. I think that is just as important as knowing what to shoot. Because if I'm at an event or even a, uh, whether it's a news event like a protest or a corporate event or something like that, like in the earlier part of my career, I made a lot of mistakes on that front in that at a corporate event, I might have shot easily 1,500 frames in a day, whereas today I might shoot the same event and shoot more like 700 frames because I know what the client is going to use or at a protest to not shoot things that are uninteresting that I know I'm not going to use. Um, cause it creates more work for me later if I have to go through the photos and then more indecision anxiety of like, you know, what am I going to use? You know what I mean? So right. on that front, definitely that's, that's something to be considered. Yeah. Shooting. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that's the most, like, I think everybody goes through that at some point. I definitely felt that, um, you know, you get tied up and you're like, well, this is the thing that's going to pay me more. And then another job opportunity will come along and like, you know, um, like present itself as you're doing the other job, you know. So I think there's a lot of room for being overworked or just being in your own headspace. Like I find that nowadays, like um, the things that are distracting me, you know, sometimes you need to leave things alone just to move on. To the next project you know i think there's a lot to be said for knowing your own timetable you know and like what you can get done in a certain amount of time so um i think as far as mistakes go i like that guy's list a lot i watched that video yeah his um, name is uh, jaron schneider fyi jaron schneider yeah um i i thought it was really nice and you know all those videos when people put themselves out like that you know they're they're declarative of like saying, hey, these are things that I think will help you. I, I love those videos, but um, as far as mistakes go, I feel like the, I, I like to just think of them as the learning process. Like, you know, you can tell someone you're going to make these mistakes. I feel like you have to make that mistake on your own to see how it affects you too. So, 
Yeah. One one thing I'll add to that is that although they're not fun, mistakes are important and they are good in terms of the development of a career because every mistake provides a learning opportunity not to get all like motivational poster on you, <laughs> but like sometimes it takes making a grand mistake for you to learn something that you will never forget again. And again, in the earlier part of, of uh, probably most people's careers, there's like a, a proportion where it's mostly mistakes and a few wins. And then in the later part of your career, it's kind of reversed. So uh, yeah, mistakes are not something to avoid. There's something to embrace. And those mistakes are, as it tilts back, as you were saying, those mistakes become a lot more epic because you know they they come out of nowhere i feel like uh, I, I feel like that learning curve though is so invaluable like I, I i agree wholeheartedly with you i think that you're just gonna find um so many so many things you reflect upon each time i, I don't know I, i'll go there i'll go there for the motivational I, like I'm, I'm here for it i'm here for the. Um, I'll- I'll dial it down to like a more specific example since we're kind of we've been talking about more of the broad stuff. Um, a mistake that I made during uh, while shooting a, a fire. Uh, this was this was uh, during the the campfire in uh, in paradise. Um, I was driving about maybe fifteen miles an hour, very smoky. I had some photos that I'd already taken of uh, like a burning school and a bunch of burning homes and stuff like that. I was trying to get the photos out, and so I, I couldn't get a good signal because AT&T kind of sucks, and my Wi-Fi hotspot wasn't working well. So it was transferring at like 4K per second, which is n- almost not enough to get a photo out. So I had my laptop on the floor of my passenger seat of my car, um, and my phone sitting on the seat, and my camera sitting on the passenger seat, just so that it could keep transferring while I was driving. And out of nowhere, a downed power line like was just appeared in front of me and I had to slam on my brakes and my cameras flew off my passenger seat, cracked my laptop screen on the floor of the passenger seat. And I hadn't transferred photos yet, rendering a laptop completely useless. And that was like an oh crap moment. (laughs) Like I'm not going to be able to file. Um, I solved it by, by driving to a Best Buy and just buying a new laptop and filing from Uh, a Best Buy, which is a whole story. But the point is, (laughs) since that moment, uh, every time I shoot a fire now uh, is when I'm not uh, 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 stationary, I take my laptop, I close it, and I put it in the pouch behind the passenger seat. I'll never leave it in that spot again because that was like, that cost me, uh, I don't know, a good three three plus hours uh, during Mm -hmm. peak action. Um, and I'm glad that it was only that it could have been a lot worse. Um, but that's something that I'll never do again. That was a big learning moment because I made a mistake. Yeah. Mm. Did you try or consider using your phone to transfer your imagery? Or was that just not an option? Like tra- the tra- problem was, the problem was that I couldn't see anything on my laptop. It was covered in like colorful spider webs. Right. So I uh. couldn't, but the data was still there. Okay. But the monitor was ruined. Oh, got it. Yeah, because you know I've been playing with the R5 and it has a neat feature where you know, and I think they've improved a lot where you, you can connect it directly to your phone via Wi-Fi, and as you're shooting, your images are automatically being transferred to your phone. And so I was just thinking, you know, that that would be a way 
where you don't even need the laptop. You're just directly connecting. And that might be a capability more with the mirrorless cameras, maybe with the Z series. I don't know. I've never used the Z, but you know, that's just a neat thing to think about with regard yeah. to, you know, that situation specifically. Yeah. But so that that definitely is possible. I've transferred remotely directly from camera to uh, to the desk before mm -hmm. um, to the photo desk. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that is slightly problematic is dealing with captions. Yeah. And granted, there is a way to make it so that you can do the captions on your phone, but it's not as efficient. The editing is like you can't really edit very well. Um, it's it's maybe for emergencies it could be done, but at that time I only had my D5 and D4S, and yeah. that wasn't even an option because yeah. it wasn't in there. So and plus, I mean, for photojournalism, you just got to have a laptop with you. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. I'd say my experience, like this, this is like a mistake, but like you know, being like kind of makes me look really well in the thing. Um, so we were, I'm dating myself, but like during the start of the first like uh, wave of um, the Iraqi war, we were on a ship and they were launching missiles at night, and uh, they. I had a combat camera team out there that was a lot more senior to me. I think this was like one of my first couple of years in the military. And um, they had sent us up to the bridge and like, well, you know, they're going to launch at like two o'clock in the morning. I asked my boss if it was okay if I shot. And they were like, yeah, you can sleep in a little bit. Just, you know, be here for this time, but go shoot it. Um, and they had some guys on a rib boat that were going to shoot it from the ocean. They were going to shoot the other ship. So we're on the carrier. There's another ship that's launching the missiles and, rib boats off to the left and these guys in the rib boat had like 15 years in the navy they were excellent shooters and like they were they were prepped and they had better gear than me they had all this stuff um i had the signal guy and my buddy that was uh, up there and we were shooting together and they were like well it's gonna appear off this side that's where it's at it's over here so we take the photos i'm and these were old cameras but um i want to say like very early d iterations um, so the ISO, I've got it ramped all the way up. Uh, you know, it's going to be grainy, but like, you know, I'm just trying to get something. I'm just playing around. Um, so we take these photos and I get one grainy shot of the missile launching and it doesn't look great. It's not clear. It's like, it, it's in focus, but it's just like super pixelated. Um, so I get that photo and I look at it. I'm like, ah, it's all right. They only launched the one set of missiles. So you only get one go at it. Um, and I went to bed. I was like, nobody wants this photo. Like, I'm going to go to bed. So I get woke up at 6 a.m. So, like, I've only got, like, maybe three hours of sleep at this time. And my my boss is like, hey, you got to you gotta go. The, the LT wants your image. And I was like, well, don't they have the combat camera guy's image? They're like, none of them came out. So the team on the rib boat didn't get anything. So I've got the only image on my card in the camera. So I get woke up. I have to go process the image and get it out. Um, so I think the mistake was like not thinking that this photo would be worth anything and it became like very, very sought after at the end. And you can still look it up. It's on, I think, Dimpos or uh, Divids, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's just very funny that like this is a thing that became a thing when, you know, I, any, anybody else, and you'll see it when you look at it. It's, uh, it's very funny to look at now and be like, this is the thing that people want. And it, it ran. It ran in like multiple, like every 
thing that was covering the war at the time was using this image. So, wow. yeah. And that's how you got so, that, Dude, that doesn't sound that bad. Program. That's not really yeah. that bad of a mistake. It's just like, because yeah, yeah. that sounds more like a win than a mistake. Well, it ends up being a win, but it's defi- it definitely makes, like I said, it's going to make me look good. But um, I think it's one of those things where not knowing self-worth and not yeah. knowing that like images go places. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, it, it drove home to the point to me that focus does not matter. You know, like things that we hear and we don't, you know, people are always worried about like tax sharp imagery, but like really it becomes true. about how the image communicates. So it took me that lesson. And I always reflect back on that when I, whenever I'm looking at a photo in a gallery or something, it might be a little soft. Um, I'm always like, well, no, like it still does the purpose, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I'd love to talk about uh, a mistake that I made um, in my career, but unfortunately, I've never made a mistake. I'm just perfect and, uh, you know, never done anything wrong my entire career life. No, I'm just kidding. Um, most of my mistakes kind of go with gear, and I will, you know, kind of the biggest thing I'll say is always pre check your gear before you head out the mm-hmm. door. Make sure you got your memory cards, make sure your batteries are charged, make sure you got all the lenses and extra things you need to get because there's nothing worse than heading to a shoot. And not having something you need, or worse, there's no memory in the memory card, and then you're like, well, all right, there we go. I remember I was at a shoot, and I didn't have a memory card, and so I think I borrowed one of the other people. It was an event, like a retirement or something, and I borrowed somebody's point-and-shoot film camera and shot it with that. I I borrowed their – I say, you can borrow this camera and shoot this – yeah, that got back to my office, and they weren't very happy about that. Um, Mm. Another time – you know, again, uh, I jumped over a ditch while holding a camera gear or having two camera bodies, I think, on my hand. And one of the, the lenses, I fell down and one of the lenses cracked on the, the ground. So um, just making sure you're, you're, you know what you're doing. You're, you're aware of your surroundings and aware of uh, where you're going and, and you have good, secure hold of your gear. Um, but, you know, going to that point you said about, like, not believing in yourself, that kind of points to, I think, one of the uh, mistakes he had mentioned, which is not charging enough for your work, you know, and I think that that the root of that is not believing yourself or believing that you're, you know, you're um, worth the amount that perhaps other people are charging or that you should charge. And, you know, Josh, you'd mentioned like you have a rate that is high and, you know, sometimes people can't afford you. How do you choose your rates, you know, and how do you know when to increase that rate? You know, how do you know you're good sure. enough for get more for your work, you know? Yeah, so the the answer to that is, of course, it depends. Um, but my uh, my style is to always get the client on the phone and to discuss with them one what their needs are, two their budget, and um, uh, if there's more of an urgency, then that could kind of command a slightly higher rate. Like for example, if a company calls me up and they're like we need this thing and we need it tomorrow morning. Like this has to happen. Like obviously they don't have a lot of options at that point. Um, now granted, I'm not trying to, uh, uh, overcharge anybody just cause I can get it. But you know, if it's like a last minute thing and I don't really have a huge amount of time to prep, then that commands a premium. Um, if a client is expecting, uh, uh, more images than would be normal for uh, um, for the deliverables, then that might command a slightly higher premium. So there's all these different, uh, I guess you could say, justifications for a higher rate. If um, 
if I get called from uh, a major tech company like Google or Facebook or something, I might have a particular rate. But if I get the same call from like a family that wants something done, like a retirement party, then I'm probably not going to charge them the same thing that I would charge Google or Facebook. Um, you know, so it kind of depends one on who the company is um, to uh, the amount of effort that you're going to have to put into the shoot. And three, how the photos are going to be used is a big part of it. If you're just doing like a family photo shoot and they're just going to put the photos on the wall, then, you know, that's something worth considering. But if the photos are going to be for uh, an ad agency or a major company and they're going to use them for advertising, that commands a much, much higher rate. Uh, did that Did that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. But um, I guess more, you know, it's in like, okay, so you charge a rate now or you charged a rate five, ten years ago. That rate okay. changed over time, I, I presume, right? Like you're not charging the same thing you charged at the beginning of your career as you are in the Correct. current. So I'm just curious, how did you – maybe you answered it, but how did you increase over time? You know, like did you choose like – a certain year and say, okay, now I'm going to double my price or I want to make more money. So, you know, I'm going to start charging this rate now instead of, or I feel more confident my work is highly sought after, or I'm working, you know, way too much. I have way too many jobs so I can kind of sure. charge more. And, you know, I'm just curious where that math came in. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I'd say that, um, my quality of work has been pretty much like about on the same level with very incremental uh, improvements over the past five years. However, I have increased rates over the past five years. And so um, I would say that uh, I kind of go with the flow of the industry. And in order to uh, explain how that works, um, I would say I look for patterns in my phone calls and my negotiations with clients. So I'll give a rate range. Like if I say, um, for example, a particular shoot is between 1500 and 2500 um, uh, or between two and 3000 I'll kind of gauge how the client feels in the negotiation about a particular rate and if it gears more toward the lower end then I'll kind of know that like more commonly this is kind of where it's at or if like let's say I quote 2500 for a shoot and a client is like oh yeah that's great well that to me means I'm too low that means I could have gotten more if they say oh, 2,500, that's like, it's a little above our budget. Like, we'll see what we can do. Would you do 2,000? Then I know I'm kind of at the top end. Mm -hmm. And so those types of conversations help me gauge like what industry standards are um, over the course of 10, 20, 30 different negotiations over time, you kind of get a feel for like what industry rates are, especially in your area. And in the Bay Area, it may be very different than other places. But um, so I would say that my rate in increases kind of go with the flow of the industry. Okay, cool, cool. Um, the other one I, I just want to touch on briefly was the niche sort of, you know, choosing a niche. And I, I've never thought about that as sort of something like, you know, again, I, I shoot all sorts of things. You know, I, I'm primarily photojournalism, but as far as niches go, you know, Chris, you know, you're kind of more the, the visual artist. You know, would you say your niche is art photography when you do photography? Is it is it that that your niche? What would well, you say your niche is? Or do you? I, I do, think, 
I think my my work is a little more fine art, like as opposed to photojournalism these days. You know, right. I, uh, I I think I'm. To me, the work that interests me is like more of a conceptual nature. Like, I think there's, um, I think there's a lot to be said about having a niche, especially if you're trying to sell yourself. I think it goes to the like all the branding. If you're trying to be a commercial photographer and work in that aspect, I interned with uh, Kevin Zacker. I don't know if y'all know his work. He um, he's a really great photographer down here in LA, and uh, just one of the nicest guys ever. But, you know, he started his niche as, like, a, a snowboard photographer. And then, like, he's now grown into one of the top commercial photographers in L.A., uh, probably in America. Um, he shoots for Gap and Abercrombie. Like, he's, he's just a wildly talented guy. But, you know, I think about those things. I think when you go to talking about niche and things like that, again, it goes to, like, how much you can sell an image. So I think it really depends on what the, the person taking the image um it's trying to do with that work like if you're trying to make money then yeah probably if you're starting out and you want to be known as um a skateboarding photographer like be like i'm a skateboard guy i I shoot wide angle skateboard stuff you can sell that a lot easier than being like well i'm an i shoot everything so i think there's um again it goes to monetization of like how do we um get our name across very quickly and say, Hey, I'm going to be this type of photographer. I don't know that that's necessarily, um, the, out of the, out of the things that he listed, I don't know if I agree with that one the most, like, I feel like, um, being the photographer you want to be is more important. I'm sure like no one likes to be told what they want, what they're going to shoot and how they're going to shoot it. I think you should be excited about what you're shooting. And like, you should be into, I think it goes to like, if you're really into shooting fires, like Josh is like, you know, there's nothing that I can say that's going to tell Josh not to shoot fires, you know? So I think there's things like that where we all make those decisions and, um, I don't necessarily know that you need to brand yourself right out the gate. I do think words matter though. I do think that, um, to a certain degree, saying you take a particular type of photo or a particular type of image is important to like define the work you want to make yeah well what do you think about that josh i mean do you think you need to have be a niche photographer to be successful or is it okay to be a general photographer um it's a marketing thing so if you're like i feel like i'm capable of doing a variety of different types of things but if I advertise myself as photographer can do whatever you want, that's a little harder to sell than like specifically like I am a headshots photographer. I am an event photographer. I am a this. This is what I do because people tend to look for things. People tend to look for photographers that are experts in the field that they need to hire them in. Um, so I think it's a matter of marketing one and two, if you are legitimately looking for a niche or niche, not sure how to say that. Um, I think the answer is to shoot whatever you're interested in. Um, choosing something that, uh, is most likely to generate money is not the right way to go. And choosing something that you don't really like doing because you think that's what you should do is not the right way to go. 
shooting something that that gets you excited about photography is the path to discover what your niche should be and um it's not necessary to have a niche but it makes it easier to sell yourself and to market yourself right okay cool well thank you for that insight all right well i think that's gonna we're gonna end our show on that note or that note notish i don't know how you pronounce note okay um <laughs> uh, where can, uh, we'll start with you josh where can people find out more about you and your work uh google me uh josh edelson on google it's pretty easy to find my website which is edelsonphotography.com that's my last name um, you can also go to the Getty site, gettyimages.com, and just search for my name and see some of my photojournalism. Um, yeah, that's a good place to start. Oh, and then Instagram, too, although uh, I'm not hugely on Instagram, a little bit. So you can check me out there, too, if you want. Great. Chris, where can people find out more about you? I have a website as well. I uh, desperately need to update. Um, it's christopherstoltz.com. But um, I'm also – I have – uh, work in a show called the in between it's like an online as everything is now but um uh, the journal of new and new media photography um if you just google the in between you can find the work there but um and i'm also on instagram a little bit uh mainly just you know for friends and stuff like that but it's stoltz underscore photos so you can kind of see just what i'm looking at around the house so um but yeah i think you can find a couple things there Okay, great. Well, if you were listening to that, don't worry about having to write any of that down. You can just go to our show notes and you'll find links to all of those uh, great resources that our two guests mentioned. And you can find our show notes at our website, aroundthelens.com. While you're there, you can check out uh, previous episodes of the show as well as any articles and other videos that we produce. Uh, you can also find links to all of our social media. So if you're looking for us and like to continue the conversation, head on over to facebook.com slash around the lens or twitter.com slash around the lens or youtube.com slash around the lens show. There's all kinds of their options and, and links. And if you'd like to support the show financially and potentially get our content early, uh, please go to patreon.com slash around the lens. You can throw as little as a dollar a month and you know get all of our content early. So we would really appreciate anything you'd like to do with that at the minimum. Please tell a friend about the show. We'd really like to uh, get more uh, people listening and interacting with us. And if you'd like to you know, again, continue the conversation, please do so online. Let us know if we're right, if we're wrong, or your own stories of mistakes and anything else you'd like to share. All right, guys. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you taking time out to be on the show. Uh, truly appreciate it. Um, for Chris and Josh, I am David J. Murphy. This has been Around the Lens, episode 246, and we are out. Thanks for listening to Around the Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. To continue the conversation, head on over to one of our social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. To support the show financially, consider donating to us via Patreon. For show notes from this week's episode and links to everything else we talked about, just go to our website, AroundTheLens.com. Finally, if you or someone you know might be a good guest for the show, get in touch with us via email at info at AroundTheLens.com. <laughs>